Okay, welcome to another edition of Culture Class Podcast, the podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds and get to learn about other cultures. Uh, my name is Nosayari, and welcome to another episode. Today, I have Dr. Elijah Nicholas on the podcast. Uh, very, very interesting story. Like when when we when we connected, I was like, "Wow, you'd be like such an amazing guest for the podcast." Uh, so, Dr. Elijah was. Um, assigned uh, a female sex at birth. Uh, he, he, he went on to spend uh, almost 25 years uh, in the military, um, you know, retired, got involved in the church, uh, wrote a bunch of books, earned a whole bunch of degrees. I can't remember the last person <laughs> I saw with like three master's degrees, like, and one PhD. I was like, what the hell? Like, are, did you Who go to school? Or, like, <laughs> so we'll probably talk about that. But, um, but yeah, welcome to the podcast. How's it going? You're in uh, Atlanta, right? Oh, it's beautiful here in Atlanta. Thank you so much for having me, Nosa. Um, uh, it's it's an amazing day here in Atlanta. Spring has finally sprung, and uh, it is absolutely gorgeous. It's a beautiful day today, and I'm well, I'm joyful, and just having an amazing day today. And I'm so jealous, man. Like, you know, in Denver, Colorado, you know, we're still wearing our, our light jackets and windbreakers. I, I don't exactly know whether to use the heater or the AC while I'm driving, so I just kind of, like, put it in the middle, just get some air for ventilation. It's not quite <laughs> hot, but it's not quite cold, but, you know, we're getting there so yeah. it's all good though. yeah yeah you're in that it, you're in that in-between phase my mom says spring and winter are battling trying to see who's gonna win for the next season hopefully it's spring it's summer right 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 i mean let's uh talking about in-between phases i mean i can piggyback off that and like jump like straight into the shits right right like yeah let's talk about you growing up right so um first things first uh you describe it as being like a lot of people conventional people out there will say you know People are born male or people are born female. You describe it as being assigned uh, a female sex at birth. So um, I guess my question is, before we talk about anything specifically relating to gender, how was like your childhood kind of like growing up? Like how many siblings did you have? Uh, how were your parents? Like, you know, what was it like? You know, what were you interested in, you know, growing up, you know, uh, play, play and all that stuff? Like, how was that like for you? Yeah, so um, I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I live in Atlanta, Georgia now. I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I was there, oh gosh, the first almost 30 years of my life. Uh, I grew up with my brother. I have one sibling that I grew up with, and then I have two siblings um, that are my father's children, but that are uh, family. Right. So um, but my brother and I have the same mother and father. We grew up together. Um, I was a, you know, I, I wrote my memoir in 2010, released it in 2015. And when I look back on it now, I would say that I was a bit of like a loner. I'm still a loner. Um, and now I realize like a lot of that came because I was living this huge secret. Right. Um, I knew I always knew that something was different about me. But to be quite honest, I didn't know what being transgender was. Heck, I didn't even know what being a lesbian was at the time. Right. And, and in the not just in the black community, but in society, period, even being gay was shunned. So like I didn't talk about it and think about what well, I thought about it, but I didn't do anything about it. 
for a long time. Um, but I have an amazing mother. I grew up with a single mom. Uh, she is my best friend, and she raised my brother and I, I can say, almost single-handedly with the help of the village. You know, we all have this village that helps out. Um, my father wasn't around. Uh, he died, actually, when I was 17 years old. Um, but even before that, he was pretty much dead to me, honestly. Um, I don't mean to sound harsh, but... Like that's how much he was in my life. I could almost count on my times and now on my hand the number of times I saw my father growing up. Um, he wasn't in my life at all. Uh, I grew up in, like I said, in Wisconsin. I played basketball like since I would say coming out of the womb, but since I I was two years old, I probably picked up basketball. I had an amazing uncle who uh, is my male uh, father figure that I grew up with, my uncle, my aunt, and three of my cousins. So I'm very family-oriented. Family is very important to me. Um, And so I played basketball in grade school and middle school and high school. And I played a little bit in college. Honestly, I didn't get the scholarship because I was like a C student, believe it or not. I have all those degrees, but I was a C student, probably closer to a C minus student right. in high school. So I didn't get And did you go to high school and college um, in Milwaukee as well? Yeah, I went to high school in Milwaukee and I went to college in Milwaukee. And after my first semester, I think it was during my first semester, I was actually um, called to go to um, serve during that time it was... Desert Storm in mm. um, the, the first Desert Storm. That was Bush, so, right? So, uh, yeah. Was it Bush? The first Bush. Yes, the first Bush. The first Bush, yes. Yes, you're taking me way back. The first Bush, yeah. <laughs> right. And so um, so I served during that time, um, left school for about seven months. And when I was in school, I was doing horrible. Like, I, I'll never forget, like, I failed, uh, like, Believe it or not, public speaking, I got like a C in. As much as I speak now, it's hard to believe. And then I, I mean, I you authored 10 books, <laughs> right? <laughs> Oh yeah, you like my. I'm sure my 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 public speaker professor now is probably if he's still living, he's probably like, there's no way that can't be the same person because I was horrible in my first year of college. And so what happened, Nosa, is I when I, after I came back from the military, I mean I was partying and hanging out and drinking. And none of my friends were in school, and so and mm. um, you in your friend, first year, your first semester before you left, so you joined the military at what 18 or something like that. Okay. 17. 17. I joined the military when I was 17. My mom had to sign the papers. Yeah, you said you were called, like, you volunteered, right? Like, this wasn't a draft or anything. Like, you volunteered to join the military. Like, no, 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 no. I volunteered. So why did you make that decision at 17? Like, did you want to see the world? Like, what was the rationale behind making that decision? You got it. That's it right there. I wanted to see the world. I have always had a love for traveling. I took my first trip by myself when I was 14 years old to San Diego. My mom let me get on a plane and fly to San Diego and visit some friends. And ever since then, and I met all these military folks, right? And I was like, oh my God, this is the answer. This is my ticket. This is the way to see the world. Oh, and by the way, I didn't get a scholarship, so they paid for my school. Almost all those degrees I have, the military paid for in some way. Nice. Got him. (laughs) You know, it's funny how, you know, people like me take a lot of things for granted. Like I didn't grow up in the U.S. I grew up in Nigeria, right? And growing up in Nigeria, like traveling is pretty 
commonplace in a sense because um, a lot of people, it's just like how you have the country and the city, like uh, where I'm from, like we have the villages and the city, right? So a lot of people, maybe our parents left the villages to go settle in the city, but because they still have roots in their, you know, um, home country, like we go back like every other December, or maybe we travel because we're going to school in another place, or maybe we travel uh -huh. to some other part in West Africa, or maybe even some people who are privileged enough to travel overseas. Like, But it's funny that when I came to the US, it's just so commonplace to see someone who grew up in Colorado, for instance, grew up in Colorado, went to high school in Colorado, got married in Colorado, got work in Colorado <laughs> without even like leaving. Like, you know, I used to date a girl who was like from a small town. And to me, like, it was very like fast fascinating like i'll go back i like let's go like i always bug her every other month we'll go back to a small town go to the lake ride yes. bikes like it was fascinating to me because i'd never like experienced that small town feeling but she was like what the hell like i want to why do you keep bringing me back to this place like i want to get out of here so just interesting like that makes so much sense that you that you use the military as kind of like a springboard to go out there so what branch were you were in the air force were you in the navy the army so I started in the army and it's interesting, uh, Nosa, because the only reason I went to the army is because I did so horrible on my, uh, my test scores, my, my ASVAB to get into the military. I took the test on the day that I just wanted to skip class to be quite honest. So I wasn't prepared for the test. I did terrible. And then when I was at the college fair, I remember I went to the air force table and I was like, Oh, if I want to go, you know, I'm thinking I'm equating traveling planes and so I'm like I'll go in the air force and they were like well what was your test scores and I think my test score was like a 36 is horrible like horrible and they said uh you might want to go down to the army table yeah and so <laughs> I went to the, uh, yeah they 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 totally like like ripped me down but you know what it became the uh it became my motivator because I joined the army and after my first six years, I retook the test. I did amazing on the test. Uh, well, I, I don't know if I did amazing, but I did enough to get in the Air Force. And then when I got in the Air Force, about two years later, I took the, um, by now the military had paid for my first degree, my bachelor's. And so I was in my master's program and I retook the test. By now I could, I learned how to take tests. I wasn't a very good test taker growing up. And so I took the test to become an officer and the rest is history, you know, um, at the time, I was living life as a female, and I was the second Black female officer on this particular uh, National Guard base. And so you oh, talk wow. about history, like it, like that's how either I'm super old or that's how much the world has changed. What what Guard base was that? Uh, Wisconsin Air National Guard, the 440th. Uh, I think it's the 440th Reserve Base is on one side, and then 28th Air National Guard or something like that. But it's the Wisconsin National Guard. You know, it's funny you said that because I remember like living in Nigeria at the time. I think it was during Clinton or something. And my dad always forced us to watch Discovery Channel and CNN, which we hated at the time. We wanted to watch like Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network and all that stuff. And it's just amazing that the information I retained from those years. But I remember there was kind of like a scandal in the Navy with female officers. Like it wasn't really, it was really, I can imagine it was really difficult to be like a, a female officer, you know, back then. What was your experience? 
experience, you know, either being in the Army or later, you know, joining the Air Force as a female officer, did you have any issues with, um, you know, your subordinates, you know, like questioning your authority or, you know, people not taking you seriously, that kind of thing? Oh, absolutely. So it started actually when I was a, uh, I think I was a corporal, maybe a E4 in the Army, because uh, I didn't become an officer until I transferred over to, to the Air Force. And I remember um, I was working in a predominantly male uh, maintenance unit, and I was like a parts, uh, medical parts NCO or something like that. And I had this guy, uh, it was something, I can't remember the exact story, but there was something that I wanted to do. And he was this old crusty warrant officer. So my brother's in the army, he'll, he'll kill me for saying this, but the, so the army warrant officers are like a step below the actual officers, but they're a step above the enlisted, if that makes sense. So mm -hmm. they're like right in the middle. Mm -hmm. And so he basically told me that I would never become an officer. I would never, you know, amount to anything. And, wow. you know, I, from that point on. And this wasn't like in the fifties or anything. This was uh, in the nineties. <laughs> no, this was uh, this was this is a uh, nineteen. This was in the nineties. Yeah, this was in the nineties when I first joined. Probably like nineteen. 94, 93 or 94. And, um, you know, he actually, again, I, I'm motivated by challenges. And so that motivated me to honestly become an officer. And I became an officer. I was like, I'm going to go to school and become an officer and come back just so this joke can salute me. Well, of course, I did go back, but he was long gone. I mean, he was crusty when I was like, you know, 18. So he was long gone by the time I became an officer. But yeah, you know, I had challenges uh, being a black female, um, especially, you know, when I became an officer, you know, it was like, get out of here. Like, we, you're just here because of affirmative action, which mm. may have been the case, um, you know, affirmative action was uh, big during that time. Um, it was during, I think it was Thurgood Marshall was still on the Supreme Court. And so, you know, uh, the, the affirmative action was uh, by many of us are where we are today, to be quite honest, because we had a chance, right? We got a chance to, to make a difference, to enter school enter, you know, the officer ranks. And so, yeah, I had challenges. And and when you add uh, being a closeted lesbian on top of that, you know, it, it was tough. I, the military was the best decision that I ever made, but it was not easy. Let me tell you, it was not easy, but I loved it. I loved the military. I loved serving my country. No, it's amazing. Like I, I had no idea like affirmative action spread to other institutions like the military. I just thought like it was in education, but this might be like a foreigner ignorance kind of thing. Um, so that's like really interesting information. What about your peers, like black men in the military? Did they show you any type of support? Oh yeah, I had some amazing peers and still, uh, you know, I have some friends that I went to officer school with that I'm still friends with today. And, you know, uh, one of my friends, it's kind of like when I finally came out to him as a lesbian, he was kind of like, Duh, you know, like, duh, <laughs> like, like no shit, right? And I hope I can say that on here. <laughs> yeah, no, you're fine. <laughs> okay, cool. But he was just like, duh, like I've been waiting for you to tell me. And so then when I came out to him as trans, he was like, duh. Like, you know, so, um, you know, he, he, this particular friend has been amazing. We've been friends and we meet, you know, a couple times a year. And, um, you know, I had amazing 
friends, Terry. I have some uh, female friends that I've been friends with like since uh, officer school or since, you know, the different schools that I, I uh, matriculated through in the military. So I had a great, um, a great support system. But, you know, of course, there were there were challenges that we we all had. But I think because I was closeted, it's kind of like we, we dealt with the challenges as a collective, as a, a group of uh, black officers or a group of black military personnel and not, you know, separate, uh, like a gay black or, you know, things like that. So, Right. In a way, it was good to be closeted because we dealt with things together. Um, whereas now, you know, uh, there's a lot of division. Right. So, did, did, when you say what, what was the need? The need to be closeted was it largely because of the military, or was like you know your family and things like that? Oh, both. Oh, wow. Oh, so I I grew up. Uh, I grew up. Uh, in a family where we were in vacation Bible school, like every summer, Oof. we were in church a lot of days. <laughs> during, during that explains your connection and, to the church, huh? Yes, absolutely. So my story is, uh, no, so when I, I came, I came out to my mom when I was 14 years old. And the way I came out is I came in the, I came in, I think after school or something, and I went into the kitchen. And if you can pick a uh, big round wooden table with four chairs and my mom is sitting in one chair or standing b beside the chair and then on the table in the center is the Bible. And I was like, this is not getting ready to go well. <laughs> I, I can, can laugh imagine. about it now. But, um, you know, it was a very painful time for me. And like my mother and I have grown so much together since then. And um, she asked me straight up. She was like, do you like girls? And like I said, my mother is my best friend. She's always been my best friend. So I couldn't lie to her. And I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so she gave me the the speech of being damned to hell and never seeing her again and never seeing Wow, um, at 14. At 14. And, and your father was, like, your father was in your life, like you mentioned, and now your, your mother was threatening to, to kind of, like, ostracize you as well. Like, how did that make you feel as a teenager? I wanted to commit, I wanted to commit suicide. And that was the first time I was like, you know what? It's, I'm just going to kill myself. If I'm, I'm never going to see my mom again, I'm never, obviously I'm not in the spiritual place that I'm in now, but, you know, going back to 14 years old, I was like, I'm damned to hell anyway. I might as well just die. Like yeah. literally, it was one of the most uh, challenging times of my life. Um, but now when I look back, um, as I've written about in one of my books, uh, I'll Manifest Your Best Life. When I look back at, at what I call the contrast, that was really a time that catapulted me to uh, go through that painful process and make a decision whether I was going to live in silence, in secret for the rest of my life, or whether I was uh, just like going to die, right? And so, you know, fast forwarding a couple years later, three years later to when I joined the military, I know so at that time, you would not believe this was 1980s. There was still a question on the application that says, are you homosexual? Uh, not in the 80s, right? Yeah, I mean, that sounds about right, because right around that period... Uh... What was it like? Don't ask, don't no. That was even before. Don't, don't ask, ask, don't tell. tell. Yeah, well, that, that was before. before. Don't ask, don't tell. Um, so basically, it was don't do nothing, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Wait, what, and, what happens if you take that? That yes, you are homosexual. You're not getting in. No, you you might as well if you check check yes, you might as well like 
go home, pack your bags, and like never get doing nothing in the military again at that right. time. Right. So I joined the military on a lie. Two lies, as a matter of fact. On that application, I lied that I said that I was uh, I was not a homosexual. I was clearly living a homosexual life. And then I also lied and said that my father had died. You know, I said my father was deceased to me, right? And so uh, there's a question on there about your parents and your history. And I put down that my father was deceased. Well, fortunately, that came back to bite me about a year later. I, while I was actually in training. So the Red Cross was like, hey, wait, it's this says, you know, but we got through it. But I entered the military on two lies and I spent 25 years almost lying who I was. Very painful, very painful. Caused a lot of, lot of, lot of tumultuous times for me. A lot of drinking, a lot of mental health problems, depression, and, you know, all the things that come with when we're not living our most authentic self. Yeah, I was going to say, like, it was also a time where we didn't, where, you know, the society wasn't as educated. It's not like we're fully educated right now. And there were also not access to some of these common resources like therapists and, you know, things like that. So I can only imagine, like, you had to turn to something to kind of, like, ease the pain and, you know, indulge in, in, in some of that stuff might have been kind of like your way out but but eventually like you spent the whole like almost 25 years as a female in the military right so if you joined that when you were like 18 19 25 years that's what the you know 40 something maybe mid 40s you were female throughout the military at what point in time did you kind of like start coming to the realization that you know what um, i'm kind of like you talked about joining the military in a lie and living a lie at what point did it come to the fact that you felt like you were living a lie in the sense that you're not in the right body like when did you start to like when when was the first time you 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 heard of like the concept or you know maybe started to research or you know look into it because you you eventually didn't transition till you left the military. So w- did it happen while you were in the military? Like how many years did it take you to grapple with the fact to do your research and you know uh, leading up to you know when you retired and did the transition? Okay, that's a great question, Nosa. So I retired in 2012 and I started my transition in 2017. So about, what's that, about five years. Um, honestly, it wasn't until it was like about time for me to retire that I started understanding what being transgender was. Like I didn't, I like I never thought of, well, I won't say I never thought about it. I thought about it, but it was one of those things that came and I quickly eliminated it from. Um, Because the main, there were two reasons. The number one reason was I never wanted to lose my relationship with my mother. I was her only daughter. And so I always felt like, oh my God, like this this would hurt my mom so much. So uh, if you remember, I said that I I started writing my memoir in 2010, just before I retired. Well, I published that memoir in 2015. It's called uh, Didn't Ask, Didn't Tell, The Life of a Gay Christian. And um, I've since taken it off the market for for legal reasons that I'm happy to discuss if you like. Um, But I wrote that memoir. Then in 2016, when I was shopping it to major publishing companies, I was introduced to an amazing gentleman who uh, at that time became my literary agent. And he read the book. And Nosa, he told me after reading the book, like immediately, he said, there's something missing. Like, I just feel like there's something that you're not telling the truth about. And so um, at the same time, you know, I had started pastoring, I was married, and I had this 
humongous fellowship that spanned from here to Uganda, to Liberia, to Kenya. Like we have churches all over uh, the world, basically, all over the, the U.S. and in Africa. And I was teaching and preaching about living authentic, living an integral life, and living in transparency, my core value. And it got to the point that I could no longer literally sleep at night. I knew this thing was haunting. And the reason it was haunting me, Nosa, is because at the same time, in 2017, I was called uh, to be in a play. I had never acted before, never had any aspirations of acting, nothing. And the character in the play was a um, transgender man. And then um, I also did a monologue for someone who this character was non-binary. Was this a church play? I was reading. No, this was a play at Emory University. It was called, uh, uh, oh, I got to think of it. Uh, Midnight Pillow, what it's called. It was directed by Park Krausen. It was at Emory Emory University Theater. Just randomly, somebody was like, hey, Doc, you should, uh, you should, uh, uh, submit for this call. I was like, okay. And I, I pretty much, I could do anything. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. And I applied. I, I did audition, did horrible on the audition. And, but they called me back. And it was the first time that I really ventured into acting. And there was a moment, literally, you know how they say a moment in the mirror? There was a moment in the mirror, Nosa, where the line said, I looked at myself in the mirror and the line was, you know, maybe it's supposed to be this and it was talking about the the kind of the journey of being trans, the journey of being non non performing, the journey of going through the hate, all of those things growing up. I mean, it was like it was my story. I get I get chills telling the story. I knew in that moment, literally, that was the moment for me that I could no longer live a lie. I could no longer tell ninety nine percent of the truth. That I had to. I had to. Uh, embrace my full authentic self and there began the journey of my transition okay like i want to touch on something you mentioned like earlier so you said you know you you were you were a lesbian uh, while you were in the military you engaged in like uh you had relationships i'll assume while you were in the military but when you um left the military when you retired in 2012 you went into ministry into ministry and you were kind of like uh in the clergy or a pastor i don't know exactly what they call it but you guys had missions all over the world but you also mentioned you were married like how how did that work were you married uh to a man or a woman and uh did anyone in the pastoral or in the clergy, like know about your your history or things like that? Like how'd that work? So yes, I was married to a woman. That's a great question. I was married to a woman. And at the time I had, uh, I had actually been introduced to a, a local ministry here in Georgia, which is inclusive and affirming ministry, meaning that all are welcome. And so that began, that's how I began my ministry track. Right. I started in the the affirming and in, in inclusive uh, churches. It was a it is a progressive Pentecostal church. And so um, I, I was there from 2017 while I was in the military and still traveling. It was my church home. Then um, in 2012. 11 or 12 
is when I ventured into uh, becoming a minister and actually answered that call. I got married in 2014. I met my wife in 2012, and we were an open uh, lesbian couple. And it was interesting because when I traveled to Africa numerous times, people knew that I was an out lesbian. And you know, if you're from Nigeria, how that is or is not accepted in Africa. When I think back now, Mosa, I'm like, what in the world was I thinking? Like, it's like, I just was like, I was living my authentic life. And ministers who, who came, I was like, well, this is my wife. And this is who I am. And they were like, well, praise I'm, the I'm Lord. Sure obviously, because you guys were doing a couple of projects and things like that, people just like, you know what, let's just take the money and <laughs> move on. Uh, it's interesting. that So it's safe to say you had support from the church or from the church you, you attended. Because I, I interviewed um, Reverend G.D. McCauley, who's kind of like, I think they just made him a bishop like six six weeks ago. He's like the first gay bishop in the Church of England. Interviewed him. Uh, but he was saying, wow. the Church of England, like imagine <laughs> the Anglican oh, Church yeah. of England. So imagine like the like this is like a twelve year journey for him or something. Like imagine like the resistance. But it looks like in your case, like you had some support uh, from the church. So um, at the time you were married to, because you said you transitioned what twenty. You started the process twenty seventeen. You got married in twenty fourteen. Like how was that conversation with your wife? Like how did you start to talk to her that you know what I think I want to do this transition that. How was it? How was her reaction? Did she try to talk you out of it? Did she understand immediately? And how how did the church also support you uh, in, in making that decision? Well, that's, that's very that's very interesting because this was another time of contrast for me in my life. That's when I realized the divisions that actually exist within the LGBTQIA plus community as being bisexual, transgender, gay, intersex community. I thought, you know what, it, we're all one community. Me coming out is just another thing. Absolutely. I see you shaking your head. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The, um, the discrimination I experienced, again, was like the time at the table with my mother it was so painful wow. because these were individuals that I trusted, that I loved, that I assumed. Uh, you know, had my back. And um, so coming out to them and coming out to my wife, it was such a painful time. And now when I look back, I realize, no, so that we were all responding in ways that we were familiar with. Just like my mother, when she responded to me at the table, she responded based on her understanding. This group of friends and my, my ex-wife, they responded and I communicated based on my understanding, right? I didn't even understand what being trans was, but I just... I knew that's what I, I was, what I am. And so my my um, my former wife and I, we actually agreed that it was time for a divorce because she was clear. She said, I married a woman and I want to be with a woman. And I am clearly not a woman. I can laugh about it now, right? right. Um, but that, that was the gist of it. And from that, that moment in the mirror at that play, Nosa, within six months, the, the the whole ministry was shut down. I was separated from my ex-wife. Wait, wait, wait. wait, I, wait. What, what do you mean the whole ministry was shut down? Did you found the ministry? Yes, yes. I found oh. it. My, my former wife and I, we, we founded it as a non-denominational ministry. It was called Kingdom International Ministries. Right. And we had a virtual church. It's funny. We see all this virtual stuff now. We were doing virtual in, in 2014. Back then. Mm. So it was, it was virtual. 
And literally one day I was affirmed as an apostle uh, on during that, that same weekend of the play. And literally when the apostle prayed on my head and, you know, pray for me, God showed me that it was all over, like literally in that moment. And within six months, the ministry, the ministry is still active. I've had, I've had a name change, but it became, I'll say it was deactivated. Um, I separated from my ex-wife, came back to my amazing condo with my dogs, where I am now, left with my dogs and their dog crates and suitcases, and um, started my, my journey to becoming Elijah. Literally, within six months, all of those things happened, and it was the hardest. It was, when I tell you, it was the hardest time of my life. I can remember days where I was like, I just want to jump over this balcony. I live on the sixth floor. I, I just want to jump over the balcony. This is this is terrible. Um and 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 you know, made it through though. And I'm so glad that I made it through. You know, my, my divorce was final in 2019 and I am the absolute happiest that I have ever been in this physical life. It is the best decision that I've ever made because now I'm completely living my authentic truth. Like there is like, there's nothing nobody on social media can say, Oh, Dr. Elijah did or said this because I live in transparency and nine times out of 10, if they say it, everybody already knows it. Right. Right. I mean, some people don't have that privilege and, and, and it's, it's, Absolutely it's strange. Not. It's strange. You said that, right? Like, uh, there's a saying, um, all, all skin folk are not your king folk. Like some, some people you expect, like I can, relate to that yeah, in a way that true. I'm African, right? And, you know, of course, you have this rift between the African and African-American community, the whole booty scratcher thing or, you know, lazy thing from our side. Like, we keep going at it. And, you know, you, you, you're like, why is a body of people who understand what it is to grow up in an environment with systemic oppression and racism are being condescending towards another people? And, you know, people will say, oh, Black people can't be racist and all that. So I relate to that in that way, saying that... Yes. I mean, who, who was it Dave Chappelle that said it in this last special that all the members of the LGBT community, like everyone, it, the, that the world, it's like together, but like in real life, like there's kind of like a hierarchy in a sense, an unofficial hierarchy, which is, you know, quite unfortunate because you feel like we're going through the struggles together. But, you know, some people tend not to understand. But is it safe to say like that, you know, you growing up in the U.S., living in Atlanta, being, you know, well-read and educated, you know, having a career career, you know, maybe having some status, economic means, that kind of thing. Is it safe to say like it's it's easier for you to make that decision? Because someone growing up in northern Nigeria, for instance, that's predominantly Muslims, like they can't afford like the, the worst that can maybe happen. And, and not like this is a good thing. You know, you can be ostracized from your family, but this might literally mean people's lives, you know, which it did in the U.S. or and still does, you know, in certain places. But there, there are some places where people just grow up and die, you know, as either male or female, because it's just impractical to be in a society, you know, uh, and and be that to transition. Like, what, what do you think? How do you think uh, uh, people in that situation can, you know, what do you think they can do? You know, that kind of thing. Like, in case someone's listening to this episode from different parts of the world, struggling with this decision, um, what, what do you think they should do in, in, in that scenario? You know that 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 is such a great question and it's so important. I um, did not realize the importance of that until I went to a conference a couple of years ago. Actually, in the first six months of my transition, and I met a group of people who 
were all transgender, identified as transgender, they were not able to transition, right? And it really, um, it really was a uh, perspective shift for me because I was thinking, well, if you're trans, just transition. Like, what's the big deal? Like, I didn't get it. But these individuals were like, like you mentioned, like they were not in a position for, you know, some of them are older. So for medical reasons, they can't transition or some of them have, you know, families that like have, they've been married 30 or 40 years. They're older. There's no way, you know, they can transition. Um, And and like you mentioned here, there's, there's uh, places in, in the world where people like it can literally mean like life or death, like death is the option if they transition. So what I would say to them is to find a support group, like whether it's online or, you know, local, find one person that you can reach out to. You can reach out to me, like if you have access to, to the online environment, you know, reach out to me. I'll put you in contact with um, support groups online, um, but find a way. This is really what helped me with my transition, even before I transitioned. It helped me to look at myself in the mirror and accept who I am. And I, I began to love the body that I was in, just as I was. I told myself that I loved myself every single day. I loved every aspect of my body. I, I had to begin to embrace who I was fully before I could even embrace becoming a new uh, person physically, right? And so I would I would say to, to whoever is listening to, you know, close your eyes and just love yourself from a spiritual perspective. Because the other thing that I'm learning is even though like, like all of us don't have the opportunity to transition, but when we close when we close our eyes, for me, when I close my eyes, I see my spirit. I don't see my body, my new body or my old body. I would encourage people to to try to find a way to go within and to talk to that little boy or that little girl that's within you and just develop a relationship with yourself, um, a relationship that's harnessed in love and not self-hate. Because we get so much hate coming from the outside world and that can turn into to, to self-hate. Right. So start from a space of, of self-love. And um, uh, I think that that will be a great start. Right. Right. Um, not to get too personal, but can we talk about the transition yeah. process? Like as much as you can share, um, you know, like mm. medically, like how does that work? Like, do you go in for one or two consultations? Are you put up on certain drugs? Uh, there's, I assume like there's a surgery somewhere in the middle of it, but can you describe that whole process uh, to, to make people who might be you know, thinking about it to to know either the severity of like or like what is exactly required, so they know exactly what they're getting into. Absolutely. So for me, um, and let me say, each trans person's journey is different. Like, there's no um, identical journey for uh, different people, right? So for me, my my transition started with six months. It was like six or eight months of mental health therapy. I'm a veteran, so I uh, it was a requirement that I do this mental health therapy. And in hindsight, I'm so glad that it was a requirement because I I know people who have not done the mental health therapy, and I personally just think that it's it, you're doing yourself a disservice and those around if you don't um, participate in some type of mental health counseling. 
So after I went through the mental health counseling, I had to take a psychological questionnaire um, before I could be assigned to my endocrinologist, which he oversees my gender affirmation process. Um, and I started my HRT, hormone replacement therapy, in uh, July, July 18th or 19th, I believe it was, was the first time that I put some gel on my shoulder and began my transition process. When you say hormone, hormone replacement therapy, is that like, does that involve uh, pills, um, pills primarily? Yes. Yes. So um, um, hormone replacement therapy, there's uh, hormone replacement therapy for female to male, which is what I identify as. I was born with female sex and I have transitioned to male. And then there's, so there's testosterone for that. And then there's estrogen for individuals who identify as female and they were born male, as assigned a male sex at birth. So I was taking testosterone. There are several options. You can take pills, you can take the gel, or you can take a shot. I take a weekly shot. I started off on the gel, um, but honestly, I wasn't seeing the effects effects fast enough that I wanted to see. And so, I, and I was like, not excited about giving myself a shot every week or every two weeks. Right. But now I, I give myself a shot every Saturday and it's just like, it's a part of my, my routine. Right. And so I take testosterone and what that does is it, it, it has lowered my voice. My facial hair is coming. Um, and my body fat has shifted. So for individuals who transition to male from female, um, you know, our body fat makeup is different than females, right? So the, the breast area, the hips and places that we normally carry fat, that begins to, to slim down, right? Um, and then my muscle mass has increased significantly. Um, and, and, and honestly, I, the person that I see now in the mirror, Nosa, is the person I've always seen. It's more like the person that I saw in the mirror before testosterone was foreign to me. Wait, when I, you say you see, yeah, when you say you see the person you see now, like this is what you envisioned your your body to be. Because if I was the one, I would like envision Denzel or something. I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but absolutely. <laughs> well, yeah. Go, that going would back be a to good the, makeup, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> right. Or um, Superman. Uh, but going back to the process, so you started with, you know, therapy for a few months, uh, then ho ho hormone replacement therapy started with the gel and then to the shot. Like, where did it go from there? So after, literally after a couple of weeks on the shot, my, my voice started uh, lowering. And what that does is specifically some individuals who are transgender, they have what's called gender dysphoria. There's all kinds of dysphorias in the world, right? There's body dysphoria, there's eating, there's different kinds of dysphoria. My um, specific uh, diagnosis, if you will, is gender dysphoria, meaning the female attributes that I would see when I would look in the mirror would like make me anxious, make me paranoid, make me depressed, and all of those things. So when I say I, the person that I see in the mirror now, like I can I, I can look in the mirror, like I love my body, like what what I see matches my brain. If that makes sense. Whereas when I was growing up, especially uh, growing up as a little girl, and when I started puberty, I I grew breasts. I was like, whoa, wait, like what is this? Like like 
think my brother don't have this. Why do I have it? Like, that's literally how my brain was working, right? But again, I didn't understand then what being transgender was. Now it all makes sense. I used to use the bathroom standing up when I was a kid. Just It was just natural for me. It was not natural to sit down. Um, and so a year later, about a year and a half later, I had what's called um, uh, chest masculinization surgery. I had both, I had a, it's the equivalent of a double mastectomy. I had both of my breasts removed to make my chest look more masculine, right? And then um, I have not had what's called, so that's called top surgery. And I have not had what's called bottom surgery. And there's many trans individuals who have bottom surgery. And there's many trans individuals who don't have bottom surgery. Because it just depends on how comfortable you are with your body. And at this stage in my transition, I'm very comfortable with my body. I'm actually more comfortable with my body now than I've ever in every aspect to be quite honest. So yeah, that's that's kind of the process. Some people transition um, fully, fully mean top and bottom surgery. And then some people stop with um, top surgery and some people stop with hormone replacement and some people uh, stop with a name change. They say, you know what? I don't, I don't like a feminine name. I want a masculine name or vice versa. And that's enough. Right. So there are, there are different aspects to this. Some people just stop at the hormone replacement. Some people go top and bottom. Some people go just top. But it almost seems like like it's a continuous, like you talk about the shot you get every Saturday. Like it almost seems like and maybe later down the line, if you want to go to the bottom surgery, like it almost seems right. like there, there has to be like some kind of not consistent, but it's like a continuous like medical procedure. It might not be like invasive, like surgery or something, but some kind of like therapy shot, that kind of thing. How expensive? does that get like how is insurance supportive for some of those procedures i don't know you being a veteran is that helpful like how does that work financially oh let me tell you me being a veteran has been the biggest blessing of my life i had no idea that when i had uh, when i started my gender transition that the military was going to cover the hormone replacement therapy that is the right in the beginning that's the most expensive part hormone replacement therapy, right? The testosterone that I take every week. Once I went to my endocrinologist and he said, okay, I'm going to write your prescription and this is the dosage and yada, yada, yada. And I was like, wait, what? I don't have to go like buy insurance to do this. And so um, that that is one of the reasons why there was a big uh, fight for our, for veteran rights and for active duty rights during the Trump administration. Because Trump was, President, former President Trump was trying to, um, uh, decodify many many of these things, right? And so for me as a veteran, everything is covered. My mental health therapy is covered. My hormone replacement therapy is covered, except my my uh, surgeries. They do not at this point. They, uh, the VA does not cover any surgery, so I had to pay for my surgery out of pocket. That can become very expensive, especially for uh, you know individuals who are not able to either they don't have health insurance or they don't have you know i i took money out of my savings account like i i have exhausted my resources my financial resources to live my most authentic life everybody doesn't have um that ability or that access to to the resource i mean not to pocket watch or anything but how much do you think it'll cost like for hormone replacement and maybe um the top surgery and the bottom surgery like ballpark figure like how much you think those were Oh gosh, you know it's it's hard for me to even guess on testosterone because I've never had to pay for it. Um, but I would say it's probably a couple hundred dollars 
easy a month, even if you're taking like every other week. I would say in the range of probably three to five hundred dollars a so month. So more just, more expensive than your car note, and maybe a little oh, less than yeah. your mortgage, kind of thing. Like it's yes, in the middle. Absolutely. And top surgery, just depending on you know the the level of care that you you see, it can range from five thousand dollars to fifteen thousand. And obviously, the the higher the amount, the better surgery or the better results you're going to. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, and bottom surgery is, from my understanding, it's probably close to a hundred thousand dollars. And um, the good thing is now some insurances are are uh, covering it with the uh, proper medical diagnosis. So, um, as as healthcare expands, um, you know, insurance companies are covering it, but but it's a big big cost. I just saw two days ago where there was a trans woman who actually got arrested because she was robbing banks for her plastic surgery. Did you see that? Yeah. And it's probably because she didn't have access to the, re- I'm sure it's because she didn't have access to the resources to get the um, the services that, that, that she needs to make her feel comfortable in her body. Right, right. What do you think about, so it's one thing, like your case is a little different. Like a lot of people might consider your case different because you were fully aware of what you were doing. Like you had gone through the military, you had had thoughts about transitioning the military, but you didn't do that because of your mom. You came out, you got married, you got in touch with the people you you loved, you went through therapy, was this whole two-year process to eventually transition. There were going to be some economic downside on your part, but you were fine with that. Like you made this decision as a middle-aged man to do this, right? What do you say to 17-year-olds or 16-year-olds who think they want to have the surgery now? And there are some states that are saying, look, you can't get the surgery till you're 21. Some states are saying, you know, when you're 18. But there are a lot of teenagers who are struggling with that. And, you know, some parents are saying, you know what, I I support you, but you can't get a a surgery that'll be so permanent before you even reach the legal drinking age. That, That makes no sense. Like, live your life a little. Try to understand what it is you're going through and don't make a permanent decision off a temporary feeling. Like, what's your take on someone who's like, let's say 17, teenager, and wants to do the surgery from male to female or female to male, would you advise that person, you know what, give it a few years, think through this, you know, your early 20s, you know, you can go ahead and do this, or you think uh, people should leave their truths uh, or, you know, start to leave their truths as soon as they possibly can if, you know, money is not an option and all that stuff. Absolutely. The latter uh, of the two uh, scenarios that you gave, I-, I think that people should start to live their most authentic truth as soon as possible, as soon as they know. Um, nobody, nobody Nobody knows us more than we know ourselves. I think that um, we don't give children even enough credit um, for knowing who they are and knowing their authentic. I think what, what happens is society chimes in and society begins to create this picture of who we are. And so that's where that's where the contrast comes in. I've been taught that this is who I am. However, I know that this is who I am. And so when those two uh, kind of uh, intersect, uh, that's when the challenges come in. So I I personally think that if a 17-year-old knows who he or she is, or even if they identify as non-binary, I I fully support that. And my hope is that parents would um, take 
their their kids through the mental health journey to a an affirming not just you know not just any psychiatrist or psychologist but someone who understands the gender affirmation process so that they can walk them through those things so that not just the 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 child but the parents can make it informed because you know once everything is is laid in front of the 17 year old they may come to the conclusion that you know what I just I'm going to start hormone replacement therapy now I'm a whole dog on uh, you know top or bottom surgery or they may know going in the door this is who I am and this is too painful for me that's what it was it became too painful to live my life as a female anymore. And had I um, had the experience, you know, 20 years ago that I have now, I, you know, there's a lot of, uh, we could say shoulda, couldas, but there's a lot of pain that I would not have experienced because I would have been living my most authentic life long ago. Yeah, I mean, I certainly support the the therapy part of it. Like, it, it's important for you to, you know, go through that affirmation process to know. But I think about a lot of the stupid things I did when I was a teenager, right? And thank God I didn't grow up, like, during Instagram. Like, these teenagers nowadays, like, all their mistakes are there online. So, like, yeah. your grandchild is going to know, like, how you were fucking up. Like, but me, like, growing right. up, like, in the <laughs> late 90s, early 2000s, like, I don't really have that problem. And I think about all the stupid things. I did as a kid, like if I was given the option, like like you said, I understand the fact that society tries to tell people who they are, like, oh, this is when you can drive, this is when you can drink, this is when you can you cannot do this or do that. But there, there are just some, like I said, a, a decision that is this permanent. Some people might say, and it might be other decisions, something like getting married, like some states will say you have to be 18 to get married, you know, uh, or you have to be, I don't know, 14 to open a bank account or whatever, you know, things mm-hmm. like that. Because it considers some things like, oh, this can have lifelong permanent effects, like effects can be good or bad on the person so like right. the person needs to understand what they're getting into like you can't drive a, th- a truck till you're 21 because if you get behind an 18 wheeler when you're less than 21 and you don't have that full whatever even though people mature differently like you can kill people you know right with that truck so you know that pe- people are kind of like arguing that you know how do we get like you said, you know, you might not necessarily go through the whole process. You can start, you know, at 17 with like hormone replacement or changing your name as as you progress. You can go on to that other things, you know, but it's just been interesting to see how, you know, legislators and things have been like debating on this in different states. And some people think that it's not the job of legislators to do that, like just like abortion, like something concerning the body, like you should leave it to like... um you know, the people to kind of like make up that decision. I think all in all, we still need like more education as, you know, a community, whether that's LGBT or, you know, the black community or just as a country or as a global world. We just need like general more education and, you know, to help make better decisions because ultimately you make a better decisions when you have more information. And that brings me to your book, right? You have, you have written a lot of you know, things about this, your most recent children's book. Um, how do I pronounce that? Is it Madoodle? Yes, Madoodle. Madoodle, uh, about a 10-year-old girl whose uncle Pete uh, becomes his Aunt Mary because she tra- or she transitioned from a male to a female. Um, one, number one. It's the opposite. It's the opposite. Her uh, Uncle Pete used used to be her Auntie Mary. 
Uncle Pete used to be our Aunt Mary, so it transitioned from yes. a, a, a female to a male. And this was like drawn from some of your life story. Like, why do you think it was important to document this and to educate people in this way? And what are some of the feedback you've gotten so far from the numerous books you've written on the subject? So, you know, the main reason, the main initial reason I wrote Madudo Nosa is because I... As I mentioned in my introduction, I love my family. I'm a family person. And um, remember I said there were two reasons why I hadn't transitioned. One was because of my relationship with my mother. And the second one was because my my amazing uh, nieces and nephews. I was afraid to lose my relationship with them. And so uh, when I finally came to my truth and said, you know, living my complete authentic truth, it came to a point where I was like, okay, so how am I going to tell my, uh, at the time, my nephews about this? My niece, you know, and she's super cool, and she was just like, okay, now I'll call your uncle, Elijah, got it, let's go. Uh, well, she's an adult, right? We grew up together. I mean, we've always had that relationship, but my, my nephews at the time were like five and nine or five and ten or something, and like, I love my nephews, my nieces, and my baby cousins so much. And so I wanted to be gentle how I approached them, right? I did what most people do. I got online and I researched transgender conversations with kids or something like that. And basically nothing came up, or I should I say nothing came up with people who look like us. There mm. were no resources out there with African-American or African faces, people of color, specifically about the trans product. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to create the resource. And I, I began to brainstorm and talk to different people, found an amazing illustrator. And, you know, in doing so, I actually found my niche. Like, I absolutely love creating children's books. Like, it has, it's kind of like acting. It's touched a different part of my brain. You can see my, my illustrations here. Like, I got stuff all over my apartment about, like, this children's book. My next one releases June 1st. And so it's a resource for families, for children, for young adults, for colleges, for universities. I've talked to more adults about a doodle than I have children directly, to be quite honest, because there's something about breaking something down to the most fundamental level, the most foundational level. And sometimes we have to see things through the eyes of children to mm. actually understand. Facts. And that, facts. that's been great. I was gonna say like that that book is not just for children. Like you have a lot of people because we you do have a lot of people who want to learn to be more inclusive, but they don't know how to take that first step. So what's like a first step if I know that there's someone in my, in my family or a friend of mine, you know, who might be part of the LGBT community? I want to make that person feel comfortable. I want to be inclusive, but what's that first step? Like I I don't know how to approach it. Like how do you what What's your advice? I think the the most the easiest thing, like the easiest first step that we can do, and it sounds so simple, but I address this in the book, is start out with pronoun, which is why I have my pronouns on all the interviews that I do, and that actually it brings down the uh, the tension, the defense, if there's any, and it can be a simple conversation as, "Hey, I'm Nosa, and my pronouns are he, him, or whatever your pronouns, they, them, whatever your pronouns are." And that lets the person on the receiving end know, hey, 
this might be a conversation I can participate in and just, and just take it from there. And then, you know, be open and willing to listen and to learn. At the heart of all of the books that I've ever written, and specifically my children's books, is love. Like unconditional love, compassion, and acceptance. Like that's at the heart of the book. So it doesn't matter, you know, whether... This book happens to be about transitioning. It doesn't matter. It could be about uh, being disabled. It could be about uh, having an eating disorder. It could be about being African in of African descent in Denver and the, the, the dichotomies that we talked about in the beginning. So it's really about finding that commonality with the person that's on the other side of the or phone or you know other family member who's at the dinner thing and and it seems like it has to be intentional as well like you have to treat it Absolutely. with some intent uh and not just uh like some of the blm thing like but let's not even get into that um i really appreciate you coming on the podcast man what's next for you like your book is coming out in june um what do you think you're gonna be up to like going forward do you have any other ideas and how do people reach out to you uh, if, if people want to, you know, uh, are struggling with similar issues or just want to reach out to you maybe to have you on other platforms or have a discussion? Absolutely. So I am Dr. Elijah Nicholas on all social media platforms at, except Twitter. It's Dr. Eli Nicholas. Um, the quickest way to reach me is on Instagram and that's Dr. Elijah Nicholas. Dr. Elijah Nicholas, um, same email, Dr. Elijah Nicholas at gmail.com. If you need to reach out to me personally, we can schedule an appointment and we can just talk and vibe. Um, and so, no, so we've got some amazing things coming up. My um, new children's book is coming out, which you can see my, I'm introducing a new, uh, somewhere, a new character here. Um, Jamie, which is a non-binary binary character. Um, so I'm still under the trans umbrella. And now I'm introducing someone in the classroom who doesn't identify as male or female. And so I'm helping children um, to understand how to welcome this person and how to have a conversation around uh, the fact that this person might not want to say whether they are uh, a girl or a boy. And so that book releases on Amazon on uh, June 1st, actually here in a couple of weeks. I'm so excited about it. Um, you can find the first book in the series, Madoodle, on Amazon as well as an ebook and paperback. Uh, I have just, um, just talked to my agent. We're getting ready to uh, pitch for a digital platform. We're going to animate Madoodle. Nice. So that is uh, in the works. So please send up, up some prayers and positive vibes for that because it is, it's my goal to have uh, Madoodle as a household name. In, in uh, you know, on everybody's laptop, on everybody's computer, and uh, I am uh, believing God for a, uh, a, a contract with a, a major streaming company or a major network that we can get Madula in more more places. So if anybody's watching and you uh, would allow me to do a pitch for you, we are ready, willing, and able. And uh, the last thing, the last exciting thing that I have going also is I just, you know, got picked up by one of the radio stations here in Atlanta. So I'm going to be uh, on the uh, morning crew show of uh, We Are You Radio here in Atlanta. We haven't uh, haven't even announced it publicly yet. I think we're announcing it on Monday. 
Um, but it's just, you know, it's, it's a blessing to be a blessing. It's a blessing to, um, to be a black trans man during this time. And it's, uh, I'm grateful for, you know, people like you who say, hey, we want to uh, understand, we want to know, we want to talk about this. And um, just really my goal is always to normalize the trans experience. I, my goal is to have a conversation and I learn about you and you learn about me and uh, we, we can make the world a better place together. Right, right. And that's Dr. Elijah Nicholas at gmail.com. And we have a we'll have a link to the Amazon link on Medoodle um, as well in there. I was going to say, uh, looking for people to pitch for you live in Atlanta, man, like Tyler Perry is right there, BT plus. <laughs> I'm just saying, might not be as easy as I make it seem, but um, yeah, that, I, that... I wish it was that easy, man. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Dude has like a jet and all these security guards tell me about it. One, one thing I, I forgot to ask you actually was your legal trouble. Like you said, you had legal trouble with the book, like going into this pitch. Like I'm sure a lot of people at the streaming companies don't fully understand. I might not want that, like their kids exposed to a cartoon of this nature. Like what were your legal troubles with your 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 first book? Uh, did you run yeah. into similar issues on how you're learning from that in your current pitches and things like that? So believe it or not, uh, my my legal issues were with um, my family on my dad's side. Um, I made on your some, dad's side on my dad on my dad's side exactly. <laughs> so I uh, I made some young author mistakes in the way that the book was written, and mm. so um, which is why I I took it off the uh, market and I'm gonna you know uh, at some point redo or do you know add to the memoir and correct those young author mistakes. Uh, but yeah, I was served a, a cease and desist uh, probably about five years ago um, because of some things that some truths, my truths that I told in the book that um, that part of my family was was not happy about. Happy about. You know, also, you um, use some people's names and real stories and things like that. Basically. Pretty yeah, much. Basically. <laughs> she was like, Pretty your much. author mistake. Man. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're... I messed up. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. Man, we sincerely wish you the best uh, with all your projects. You. And, you know, when you finally get that on streaming, like, come back to the podcast. Let's talk about it. Uh, maybe we Absolutely. can have, like, an ad- animated interview or something. Who knows? <laughs> but, oh, yeah. man, that would be dope. <laughs> right i know right i know right but yeah sincerely appreciate you coming on the podcast uh if you're listening to this uh, reach out to dr N- uh, elijah nicholas uh connect with her and follow culture class podcast as well on all social media send us an email and check out our website at cultureclasspodcast.com till next week uh be well <laughs> <laughs>